30 seconds. One time for the underdog. One time for the underdog. Ignition sequence start. Let me see you put them up. Reach the sky, touch the stars up above. Cause it's one time for the underdog. I'm Patrick Bedevi, your host of IE Tim, and today I sit down with a 30-year FBI undercover agent, and he shares and exposes what it was like to be an undercover agent for the Sinaloa cartel, La Cosa Nostra, and the Russian mob. Michael, thank you for flying out and being a guest with us. Thank you for having me, Patrick. Yes, and it's exciting because you just retired two years ago, so a lot of your stories are going to be a good time. We're going to have some uh, stories that are recent, some that are older. This is a good mixture. It is. So when did you wake up and say, I'm going to go be an FBI agent? What was that like? I never did. <clears throat> so the way that came around was uh, I grew up in a police family. My father, my grandfather were police officers. My son is now a police officer. I didn't think I had a choice. That was the family business. We were blue bloods before there was a blue bloods. So I knew I was going into police work, but I expected to be a police officer. And that's what I became right out of college. I became a police officer. And while I was a police officer, we were responding to bank robberies in which the FBI also uh, had jurisdiction. And one day, one of the FBI agents asked me if I had considered joining the FBI. And it literally was the first time it crossed my mind. And I told him, not really. I was very happy being a police officer. And the next time I saw him, he handed me a sheet with the application. And the, he also slipped a second piece in, which had the salary, which was more than twice what I was making as a police officer. And I had just had a baby. We were just starting our family, so I figured I'd give it a shot, never expecting to be hired. So there was no lifelong ambition to become an agent. God. It just kind of happened, and uh, I'm glad it did. What did your dad think? Did, they, did you not tell him right off the bat, or family, that I'm going? Was it a secrecy, secrecy thing for no, you? No, my, my father had passed early. Um, he, he was a police officer for almost 30 years. He died six months after retirement. You were 19, so, right? Is it, uh, is it, were you 19 when you passed? Or I was uh, 19 years old. You were when 19 passed, years old, that's yes. right. You were 19. Yep. So, so when you were 19 when you passed, he was a retired cop. You become an FBI agent later on in life. Family, do they know yet that you're an FBI agent? My family knew I was an FBI agent, obviously, both my own family and then my, my extended family. But they didn't know I worked undercover. I didn't, uh, I I didn't think that was a good idea. I tell the story that. When I was a cop, I came home from the midnight shift. We had just been married. I was from a police family, so I understood police work. My wife wasn't. So I got jumped in a bar and came home with the two black eyes and a separated shoulder. And my wife yelled at me for apparently getting my butt kicked uh, at work, but it really frightened her. And we made a deal very early in our marriage that what I did at work stayed at work. So once I transitioned into undercover work, I didn't want to bother my wife and my kids about what I did. So they knew I was an FBI agent, but not what I did at work. So were you gone regularly, kind of like, hey, you know how Pistone was gone for a long yeah. time? Was, was that also with you yes. when you were gone? I was gone, especially when my kids were young. Um, and again, uh, you talk about the book that I wrote. I wrote the book not for general consumption. I wrote it to thank my wife and explain to my children what I had been doing. That was literally so, your motive. That was the motive. I never intended this to be published or being out in the open. I wanted to thank my wife. She raised and took care of our family. I have three productive, healthy, wonderful children. It's all a result of my wife taking care of them when I was out playing wow. cops and robbers. Wow. And my kids, they didn't understand. They don't, when they're little, they don't know you're an FBI agent. Mm -hmm. They just know you're doing weird things. I tell the story that 
My son was homesick from school. He was little, seven or eight years old. I was working the night. I came home, went to bed. He didn't know I was home. I didn't know he was home. The doorbell rang. I peeked out the window and I went downstairs and my son's at the top of the stairs. I don't know he's there. And I answered the door with a gun behind my back. And my son, who was seven or eight at the time, never told us. He told that story years later at Christmas time. Wow. And I wanted to explain to them, because they'd see me in the basement with a recorder. Mm -hmm. um, just odd things that kids don't normally see their parents doing or they don't understand. And then I'd, I'd leave for months, weeks. There was one case I was gone two and a half years. Permanently? You've gone two, two and a half years, they don't see you at all? Uh, bouncing back and forth about once every two months or so. During that time, my kid, he was in the fifth grade, he got in a fight in school because another kid teased him, his parents were divorced, his father was gone, so he decided to handle it on the playground. It's just a crazy lifestyle, so I wanted my wife and my kids to understand because they made the same sacrifices that I was making. Mm -hmm. What was their reaction when they read the book? I know I heard they read in less than a week or less than a day, some story uh, like that. What, what was their what reaction? What happened was, when I first uh, wrote it for them, I didn't realize when you write a book, you don't have to write the whole book. So I wrote 357 pages, and I gave it to my children and my wife at a Christmas. I put it under the tree one year. I think it was 2014 or 15. My wife and my daughter went upstairs that day and came down the following day, having read the whole story and not knowing a lot of it. So they, uh, they were first exposed to it. And then it's, it explained a lot. My kids all say to me now, now oh, now I get it, now I got it. So Were they crying? Were they wow? Yeah, it was actually emotional because, um, and again, for my wife, she didn't know the situations that I was involved in, which I didn't want her to know. She didn't join the FBI. She wasn't responsible for what I did. But, you know, to get up in the middle of the night and then leave and not come home for four or five days, um, just the just the family life of an undercover agent is is difficult and again at the end of my career I always had an interest in writing I wanted to try to write something I wanted to do that all my life and so that's how I figured I would um, uh, try it by explaining to them the people most important to me what what I was doing would you recommend the life to other people or no yes you would I would as an FBI agent as an FBI agent, I would because, uh, number one, it's very fulfilling. Um, people say to me, well, you know, you wrote a book and a movie, blah, blah, blah. 30 years of FBI work was the ultimate. That's all I want to remember. That was, the, that was the highlight of my life. And the rush you get, the adrenaline rush, the satisfaction of basically, because you've got to remember, you're an FBI agent, you're convincing real bad guys that you're as bad as worse than they are. That's not easy, mm -hmm. so it's a, it's a challenge. I always like to have challenges in front of me. So I was terrible when I first started undercover work. There was no training. I didn't know what I was doing, but I knew I wanted to do it. And it's a skill that you can improve upon if you work hard at it, and I'd like to think that I worked hard at it, but I always wanted the next one. And that's why retiring was so hard. There, was, there wasn't a next one. Retiring was hard. Very hard. Wow, of course, I mean, if you're doing it 30 plus years, just that side of it yourself, what makes a good FBI undercover agent? Uh, in my opinion, there's a couple of things that make um, <coughs> some agents perform better than others. One is um, you have to be humble. You have to be confident without being cocky. You have to be a good listener. People miss that. 
when a bad guy's talking to you, young undercover agents start thinking of their next answer, and they don't listen. Mm. And if you don't listen carefully to what they're saying, they're the ones who are providing the evidence, not you. The more you're talking, the less evidence they're giving you. So I trained new undercover agents, and I actually have a list of good traits and bad traits. And the, the good traits are basically uh, common sense, good judgment, not getting too high, getting too low. And you have to be comfortable. You have to be comfortable in the environment. A lot of people don't want to go into undercover work because they're fearful of uh, not being able to adapt to the group setting that they're in. Uh, I felt differently. You know, if you continue to work at this skill, you can, you can infiltrate literally almost any group in the world. Got it. How different is uh, FBI from your experience versus a CIA agent? Or is it pretty close on who would, who would do well? Again, I don't know enough about the CIA. I just know that state, federal, <coughs> when, you, when you meet state, federal, and local law enforcement officers who also work undercover, I can kind of pick them out of a crowd. There's a certain, uh, it's hard to describe, but there's a certain mindset, there's a certain uh, uh, skill set that you kind of uh, get used to when you see people. You know, a lot of times when you're saying this, is there a part of it that's also acting as well? Like uh, I don't like to use the word acting. <coughs> as I've said, uh, you don't get take two in undercover work. If you make a mistake, literally, you can lose your life and you can jeopardize an investigation. Was there ever a time where that happened to you or no? Absolutely. W what situation was it? Uh, we were investigating a suspected serial killer uh, that we had had contact with in an undercover capacity. And one of the agents uh, ass-dialed a phone and the bad guy heard us talking about our approach to him. Oh my God. So we jeopardized, and again, <laughs> you know, you do that and you call your, your friend and people laugh about it, well, we called a serial killer. And, and again, not proud of that, it happens, but that's how important what we're doing is so you make one mistake like that we had already convinced him that we were bad guys but then we made a mistake and the case was closed obviously he, he actually called the fbi and said don't bother coming back he called the fbi and said don't bother calling back coming back coming back yeah and then what happened to him later on he's still on the street he's still on the street and what year was this was it 20 years ago i mean no this was probably Maybe 10 years ago. 10 years ago and he's still on the streets. Mm -hmm. He's behind you in the grocery store. Wow, very impressive. No, very it's not, not impressive what, because that's a mistake that What made. I'm saying with him is the fact that he's still in the streets is impressive for him to not, still not be caught. Yeah. That's what I'm saying by being yeah. very impressive on his end. <coughs> so, so, okay, so let's go through some of the stories. Let's go through some of the stories. Joe Piston, are you guys friends or you just know of each other? Joe and I are, I would call us acquaintances. Okay. Joe was ge one generation before me. So I believe Joe retired a year before I joined. So that's, there was no overlap in our careers. He was just getting out as I was coming in, but everybody in the undercover community obviously know Joe's um, work in New York, and he's been kind enough to uh, help me along in my career. But again, we don't socialize, we don't, spend time with one another, but any good undercover agent will always try to help another undercover agent. I don't care what kind of badge you wear. If you have the cojones to go out on the street and do this, I'll help you. 
Oh, it doesn't matter what it is. You guys work together and you understand each other. Absolutely. That's great to know. Have you ever been in the same room with uh, Joe? Yes. I told Joe at the end of the interview, I don't know if you remember that. I said, Joe, I feel like you still feel like you're with the mob. And he says, no. I said, you talk like a mobster. You won't take those glasses off. <laughs> you dress like a mobster. What do you think when you th see Joe? Are you, are you seeing somebody that was so deep into their life for six years that some of it is stuck? No, and that's a good question because when I watched that interview, Joe's answer was the exact answer I'd get you. He never once confused his identity. He's an FBI agent, as I was an FBI agent. Our job is to collect intelligence and evidence. We may look, dress, talk, act, and manipulate them like they do, but we're not one of them. And people ask me all the time, don't you feel bad when you get next to a guy and he goes to jail? And no, I don't, because he put himself in jail. At all? No. Zero? Zero. Other people may feel differently. Yeah. I'm just telling you my experience. Um, I like these guys. I mean, the mob guys that I hung out are the, were the funniest guys in the world, but they kill each other. They kill they, each other regularly. If they kill each other, yeah. that's a crime. Yeah. Uh, and they do other things that, you know, they want, they want the lifestyle that comes from easy living, and then they don't want to pay the penalties when they're caught. So that's their decision. I never forced anybody into committing a crime. That's what they chose to do. Are you friends with anybody from that life that turned their lives around, that got a hold of you, and you guys are now have a relationship, or not at all? One of my best friends, he just passed away a couple of years ago. There's a, it, it's one of the cases I work <coughs> in the Merlino, Philadelphia crime family. There was a informant named Ron Prevetti. Uh, he's publicly been acknowledged, etc. He skilled me, not an FBI agent, uh, informant, a bad guy turned informant taught me the ways of the mob. And I spent years working with him and learning from him. And I had a, a super relationship with him up until his, his death a couple years ago. So, you, so he's the lefty to you. He's, he's the guy that was kind of given, except he, he wasn't an informant. It lefty wasn't an right. informant, but he was. Prevetti was an informant, but he had, been, he had been in the military. He had been a Philadelphia police officer. And then he switched sides, and he became a captain in the uh, in the uh, Merlino family, and then he decided to get out before we got him, and he came on board with us, and he taught me literally almost everything about the mob. Some of the things, what are some of the things he taught you about the mob? Well, uh, there's a perfect example. I showed up one time, he was talking about the way I dress, he showed up, I showed up one time and I had on a very nice suit, and uh, he looked at me and he said, you're an FBI agent. I said, what are you talking about? I said, it's a $1,500 suit. He said, yeah, but you got on $8 socks. You got J.C. Penney socks on, so you're cheap, so you're an agent, you're not a mobster. So who would think that what type of socks you wore? That's, that's a good example of what he taught me. It's just, it's little things like that that made me get better at what I did, listening to him. People think of informants, and I know there's different opinions of that, but they've lived that life. They know that life. Why wouldn't we take that help? Very interesting that he's paying attention to everything people are wearing. Eight dollar mm -hmm. J.C. Penney socks with $1,500 suits. Some of the cases you were undercover in, one of the cases that seems, that's pretty interesting to me is the, the, the largest heroin, you know, you guys seized, I think it was $400 million, if I'm right with the numbers, if not the second largest at the time. It's one article says first, biggest, another one says second, so it's obviously one of the biggest one ever. 
How was that, going through that process of experiencing that? Okay, in that case, the, f the first heroin case you're talking about was in Philadelphia, and I was the case agent. I was not the undercover agent because these guys were in Karachi, Pakistan, and we convinced them to send 50 kilos of heroin um, into the U.S., and we seized it. So I would help develop the storyline. They thought they were talking to another inmate, somebody in the prison system that there was a relationship with, uh, so that case, when we seized the uh, 50 kilograms of heroin in 1992, that was valued at 180 million, and we didn't pay a dime for that heroin. It was all fronted to us, given to us in advance, believing that we would sell it and repay them, which we obviously didn't. Um, and then that left that led to the second heroin case after the debacle with the heroin gone missing. Uh, there's a second heroin case where we were able to use the original defendant as an informant to make a second seizure, which was another 200 million. So combined, there a total of 400 million between the two. God, of them. so this was a time when you were uh, an agent for seven years and they accused you of taking 180 million dollars. After the first seizure, yeah. that 50 kilograms, uh, that I was a golden boy. In the FBI, that means you can do no wrong. So I was a golden boy, and a year and a half later, the FBI turned around and accused me of stealing it out of the evidence locker. When they did, what happened to you? Were you still working day to day or no? I was working at the time, and I was told that I couldn't discuss it with anyone, including my family, that I was to keep my mouth shut while the investigation took place. So my own agency thought I was guilty of a horrendous crime. How long did that uh, investigation last? About four months. Four months. And then after four months, do you, because I know in that world, it's, you know, you get a scar, the golden boy is gone, and then everybody's kind of like, what if, you know, what if he is doing something like that? I tell people all the time, I went from golden boy to public enemy number one. My reputation, my integrity was destroyed, falsely. I know who supported me and who didn't. The people who didn't, to this day, I won't speak to them. I was on a SWAT team and on a drug, te uh, drug squad at the time. And the agents on the drug squad mm -hmm. and the SWAT team, who I worked with on a daily basis, supported me 100% while the rest of the office waited for the see which way the wind was blowing. It was horrific. The FBI, you don't make a lot of money. Everything is your reputation and your integrity. And to have that falsely tarnished and never be given it. I was later given an explanation, apology by Director Free. Nobody who accused me in the first place ever apologized. I mean, that's pretty wild, because in, that, in the world, if you're an FBI, the, the stripes and the respect you have is the fact that, you know, I'm all in. You can trust me, you know, when I'm doing that. When you take that away from me, what is my currency? Then I got it. Did, did you kind of feel like you have to keep constantly earning back that currency from the... Well, people ask me about it. A lot of people ask me why you didn't quit. Well, I didn't quit because, number one, I didn't do anything wrong. And number two, I had a family to raise. And all I know was police work. So I wasn't quitting, and then my father had taught me at a very young age, you get knocked down, you get up. Mm. And that's what I did. I said to the FBI, all right, if you think I'm somebody of that character, I'll show you. And that's when I went and started making those cases and bringing in results. But to this day, you can tell 25 years later, I'm still pissed off. To be falsely accused, and that's why I gave every bad guy, I never put anybody in jail that I didn't know 110% because I was falsely accused of something. So you have to make sure your evidence is, is locked, locked in tight. Did they finally find the money or no? Did they finally find the heroin? Well, they found some of it. Most of it was uh, sold, and they arrested another FBI agent 
who, who set it up in a way that the finger would be pointed at me. So somebody did end up doing the time for it? 25 years. 25 years? Yes. And they know it? This is uh, amongst all your peers, everybody knew that it was him that did it? They knew after, yeah. but during the time. No, no, after. I, after is what I'm after, talking about. But there were still people after who still thought I may have been involved. Yeah, and those are the people that you don't want to talk to for 25 years. Now, I mean, that's pretty obvious. You've got a lot of pride behind what you're doing. So it, it, there's a funny story about the one where somebody who was an insider taking, trying to sign a $6 million deal uh, to help the mafia make money and you found out about it as an inspector. What, what happened there? That was another mob case. Uh, that case took place around 2006, 2008. The head of the Boston uh, organized crime family at that time was a guy named Carmen Denunzio. And he was known as the cheese man because he operated a cheese shop in the North End, which is the Italian section of Boston. This the patriarch was a patriarcha family or something it, like that. No, that's the earlier one. So this is the New England LCN. This is the Boston-based mob at the time. So we had decimated them through other prosecutions. So he was kind of the next in line, but he wasn't a brain surgeon. So he had he had friends who <coughs> owned a dirt farm and they had toxic loom at the dirt farm that couldn't be used anywhere and D'Annunzio came up with the brilliant idea that he would sell it to the state of Massachusetts to be used in the construction of the big dig it's a big construction project up there so we got wind of it the FBI heard about it and I was asked to um, uh, go undercover in that case and pose as a corrupt Massachusetts state official so I had to go to dirt school I didn't know there was such a thing where you have to go learn about dirt. There's a lot of things to know about dirt. But again, getting back to, that's what we have to do <laughs> wow. when we do these things. If you're going to say you're a dirt inspector and you're going to go to a dirt farm, you better know to be able to, you can talk about dirt. So I did my schooling. The state of, the state of Massachusetts was tremendous, giving us uh, an education and resources, and I went out and posed as a corrupt state official. How was that? I mean, is this the time when you pull up with the car and you do what you do with the car? Because that's pretty crazy. I'm just, I visualize and I'm thinking to myself, that's insanity. No, but what that is, and if you looked at it, I used the Cesar Milan School of Training. If I used to love to watch Cesar Milan, the dog whisperer. He would control dogs without them understanding he was controlling them. And I took some of the techniques and I would practice on human beings. And they're very effective. And so when I pulled up that day, they're expecting some state inspector. And so I borrowed a, a state truck, a huge lime green truck. I had all the gear on, the hard hat, the boots. I drove into the dirt farm at about 100 miles an hour, and I just rode around spinning. I ignored them for like 10 minutes. I got out of the truck. I w went to the bathroom against the tire. I didn't wash my hands, and I went over and shook their hands and called them by the, la uh, the wrong name. And the point being there that they think this is some nut, but at least they don't think it's an FBI agent. Mm. And that was my, I made such a uh, strong approach to them, I didn't want them to think that I possibly could be there collecting evidence, and, and they bought it. How long was that? How long was that undercover uh, uh, timeline on that one? That case was quick. That was maybe uh, six months or less because it, it, was, it was going down the road when they asked me to, once they had that opportunity, mm -hmm. to, to, I jumped in quickly because I had previous experience with the LCN. Um, but the office had been trying to make a case for about two years 
and we made the we made the case from the undercover technique in about uh, ten meetings. So what's what's a short case? What's a long case? I know you said two and a half years one time being away from the family. Yeah. Well, what would be considered a short case? A short case can literally <coughs> be one day. Um, a good example in a, that we talk about a little bit is these murder for hires come up or mm-hmm. these robberies come up. We get information that somebody wants to hire somebody to kill somebody. We have to get in quickly. We have to in, try to interrupt that. So you may do that. I did one, or you, or you have bank robbies. Guys want to rob banks, and you need somebody to uh, infiltrate the bank robbers before they do it. You know, we're watching them, we're hoping that they don't strike, but if we have the ability to get next to them, we want to do that. I did one bank robbery case where they wanted me to be the getaway driver, and I had to secure weapons and, and the car, and of the day of the robbery, I drove the two robbers up to the bank while the SWAT team was waiting, and I let them out and I drove Come away. On. <laughs> How did they hire you, though? How did they find out about you? Again, I don't want to give too much to the other side, but believe me, informants are critical to law enforcement, and I'll leave it at that. Got it. But then you gotta you gotta sell yourself. You may get introduced, but then they gotta believe you're willing to you're, you're a bank robber. So this is what I mean about the the double lives. You know, you're going home at night. But this is what Pistone said, and I say the same thing. I know I'm an FBI agent. I'm not a bank robber. So I'm coaching baseball at night, and I'm robbing banks during the day. But I'm not robbing them. I'm helping the SWAT team arrest them. <laughs> uh, you know, so again, so the general public isn't harmed. How often did you go from a crazy thing you just did, helping robbers rob a bank or, you know, FBI agent catch the robbers, to actually going to the game? How often was your life from, here's the FBI agent undercover, hey, baby, how are you doing? Let me put you to sleep. How often I, did that happen? I tried to, as I got later in my career, when I started to understand undercover work, I built my undercover life around my family life in the sense that I would go to my kids' games. Sometimes I would bring bad guys to the games. Come on. No, it just, it's, there's a way to do it. I don't want to like, get too into the, the, the weeds, but there's a way to do it. But my wife pointed out to me much later, you're missing your children growing up. So that's when I took control of my schedule and I would work nights, weekends, but I'd work around things that were important to my family. So everything I could go to my family, events, you know, I would try to do that. There's sometimes you just can't as we all know, but first responders, law enforcement, you don't get to pick your hours, but because of the, the, uh, the specialty area I was in, I really did get to pick my hours. If I had to meet a bad guy, I'd meet him at midnight rather than six o'clock when the game was. So I tried to make up for lost time by doing it. Mm. So, so when you work with the th- three different families, you said the, the Russian mob, and then it was the three La Cosa Nostra families, and then you're talking about the Sinaloa cartel with El Chapo. Were you the were you doing the case, or were you the actual undercover agent on these three uh, families? The three families, I was the undercover agent. All three of them. All three. What was the biggest difference between the way the three families ran? All right. So my first one was uh, ninety eight, ninety nine. That was against Merlino. It's called the Merlino Luisi. There was a there was a faction in Boston dealing with a faction in Philadelphia. Um, Joey Merlino was a very well known mafia boss. Uh, I couldn't meet directly with Merlino because I had been in Philadelphia and helped arrest him on a previous case so he would recognize me or we we suspected he would recognize me so I had to dance around that I would deal with the guys in Boston who were getting the uh, um, their marching orders from Philadelphia that case took about six months 
and that was in t time intensive. You had to be there at their beck and call. Um, fast forward to 2000, I go do a case down against the Patriarca family in Rhode Island, a guy named Matty Gugliametti. He was a captain coming out of prison and we had information he was going to be the boss. So I went down to start the case in Rhode Island in 2000 thinking it would take you know a year or two and that ended up being five years straight. So there's a six month and the five years and then the cheese man, the last one, was about a year or less. So to in total it's about six, seven years pretty much full-time with, with them. Culturally, it's kind of like being on three different sports teams. What's the biggest difference between these three uh, different organizations? The Patriarca family was very sharp. They were, they were looking for law enforcement. They were the brightest group um, we went against. They were very hard to infiltrate. It took me over two years just to meet the main guy. Uh, that was a slow, methodical approach that we had to take, and that's going down there every day for two years, not even meeting the guy. I finally met him and then we, we had an, a, a chance to investigate further after I developed a relationship with him. The other two groups, truthfully, weren't that intelligent because they let an unknown, me, into their inner circle. D'Annunzio, the last case, he met with me a complete stranger. It's unheard of. He shouldn't have done it. But we're gonna, the FBI, we don't, you know, we don't mind. We'll take advantage of, of that. Of course, yeah. And the same thing with the, uh, with the Luisi family and the Merlino family. I was introduced by Ron Prevetti, the informant I spoke to. So he had, mm -hmm. he had cachet with them. So by him vouching for me, I was able to work my way into the top level right away. And we did a, we did a drug case in the Philadelphia case. We did a drug case in the Rhode Island case. And then the... Uh, Bad Dirt was the final one. The, yeah. uh, who final was the family. toughest one between the three? Like Matty Gugliametti, the Patriarch. The by far. The Rhode Island, yeah. Well, he when, when he told me one day, he told me one day, Mike, um, t you're telling me more things that I need to know. I hope you're not telling me for the wrong reasons. He basically told me he thought I was an FBI agent. It was too late. Uh, it, was, it was done. He told you this? Yeah. What was your reaction when he said this to you? I expected it to come and I just played it off. You gotta remember, these guys grew up around each other, they go to grammar school together, their families know their family. Who's the new kid on the block all the time? So when things start going south, they're not gonna look at the guy they grew up with, they're gonna look at the guy who last came into the game. Why do they ever even trust a new guy? Because they're all greedy, every one of them. Every one of those cases were made because they were greedy to make money. I presented opportunities in each of those cases to make money for the mob and they'll do it. The mob tells you they don't deal in drugs. That's complete myth. Uh, they all deal in drugs because it's worth it. It's a money maker. All right? So if you can make them money, they'll interact with you. They'll be suspicious of you, but that's their Achilles heel. Were you ever in a moment where you kind of like, I could get killed? Were you ever in a bad situation with those three families? Where there was the one story that we tell that um, in the first case, the Philadelphia-Boston case, we were about six months into it. I had already bought drugs from them. We, had, we were buying more drugs, and the FBI received information that they had learned my true identity. Uh, the FBI wouldn't tell me how they learned that, um, which was the right play. Um, myself and the case agent argued that we could go back, but we would only meet them out in the street where I could be watched and we, they reluctantly agreed to let us do that. And of course, not the first time, but the second time I went back, 
they motioned me into the the coffee shop, the social club where they hung out, and I tried to get them to come out, and you know we're in a standoff. And finally, I said, you know, I gotta I gotta go inside. And you learn as an undercover, you have to, you can't shoot your way out of situations. You got to talk and think your way out of situations. So I went into the club very reluctantly. Um, I had real bad feelings. I knew the two guys behind me were armed. There were two guys, two goons behind me. And I went in where I'd been in this place many of times, but this day, the Bobby Luisi, the head guy, said, Mike, we, we got to go down in the basement, okay? And you probably don't want to go down in the basement of a social club. So I didn't have a choice. I'm not going to fight my way out of it, so I had to think my way out of it. I went down in the basement, and this is a funny story that very few people believe, but those were the days of jukeboxes. And as I went downstairs, Frank Sinatra's My Way was playing on the jukebox, and that was the only song I ever heard my father sing in my life. And he had been dead for 25 years, but it was almost like he was saying, you're gonna get out of this. And it kind of relaxed me. And then when they got me downstairs, they started to talk about more cocaine, so it finally dawned on me, they're not gonna kill me. And I collected more evidence, and I got out of there safely that day. They asked them after they arrested them, they said, what happened that day when you brought him in the basement? And they said, we thought the FBI was following him as a bad guy, and we brought him down in the basement to protect him. But I wish they had told me that that day. Wow, they thought the FBI was following you. Yes. And they brought you down to protect you. So how are you staying calm in that moment? How are you, and I know you're telling the story about your father with the idea of my way in 25 years. Yeah. But what is, and I'm sure this is not the only situation, but what are you doing to just kind of stay calm? Number one, you don't, you don't try to put yourself in that situation, okay? You should pick up danger signals before it's too late. So that's what you have to get better at when you do this. Now, I knew that day, when I was outside that day and they started to try to get me inside, I should have just left. But I was still relatively young undercover at that point. And you gotta remember, FBI agents, for the most part, are type A personalities. We can get the job done. But the older I got, the, the smarter I got, and 10 years later, I never would have, I would have walked away that day. I never would have went in that building. You would have never gone in? Never. Why not? And that's what I train younger undercover. Why not? Why wouldn't you have gone? So I didn't get killed or hurt, okay? And no case is worth an agent getting killed or hurt for. If you asked, if you asked the Joe Pistone that day if I should have gone in that building, I guarantee you his answer is no. Same. Okay? But... You know, once you're in something, you have to think and talk your way through it. So what I do in training is I tell agents now, rather than wait for the day somebody sticks a gun to your head, start thinking about it now. What are you going to do? All right? It's just, it's just, it's life preservation. You have to think these mm. things through. Now, I grew up, I grew up in a blue-collar environment. I grew up with some people who ended up in jail. So I wasn't uneasy in those circumstances. I, I had dealt with guys like them, and, and there's certain guys you gotta push at, and other guys you gotta give them some space, and you just have to learn that. What's there, the most vicious? There's, there's no book that you can read. I know, on. that's what I'm saying. So school, and there's not really any kind of a training that they put you through, right? There is training now, there was none when I started. Okay, got it. Yes. Yeah, so so it's just, you have to get lucky picking a person to do the job, and not you, the person hiring you. Back when I first started, if you were a cop or you were in the military, the FBI thought you could work undercover. Don't ask me why, because those are the two of the most uh, regimented professions in the world. But they th so I got picked to work undercover because I had been a cop. Got it. 
What, what's the most vicious thing you saw happen right in front of you? You're sitting here like, oh my God, I can't believe that just happened. You have to stay calm. The most vicious thing that happened to me did not happen to me in, undercover. It happened during the um, Boston Marathon bombings, which I was also involved in just as a agent. And I saw a lot of the destruction and carnage from that event, which was horrific. You were there when it happened? Yes. I mean, I was in the city of Boston and responded to the event. Got it. Got it. But anything with the undercover, with mobs, did you see anything vicious in front, in front, right in front of you? I never saw anybody killed, obviously. Okay. I never saw anybody shot, anything like that, because you really have to... People think you go undercover and you just decide 10 minutes before you do something. We, we put weeks and weeks and months into preparation, so we don't put ourselves in a bad spot. So when I went to do something with the mob, and this goes for all undercover agents or different cases, you set yourself up for the most success and the least amount of risk. So if you know there's a beef going on between two families, you don't want to be hanging out with them. Be somewhere else. So I would set up my persona that I couldn't be around 100% of the time. I was making money doing something else, maybe somewhere else. You can't, if you stick around with them full time, you're going to come into these situations. During that first case mm. I talked to you about, mm -hmm. two of the subjects got into a road rage incident and killed a guy. Now if I was driving around in a car with them, I would have been at that scene. But that's the type of thing. There was no reason. If you're not there for a purpose to collect your evidence, don't hang around with these guys because trouble's going to happen. It's just inevitable. So how long, was, uh, how long did you work on the Sinaloa case? Did you say six months as well? Was that no, a, that was three years. That was three years. Did you ever get close to El Chapo? Like, were you ever near him? Or No, we, I communicated with him through, actually, we would communicate. He was the world's most wanted fugitive. He was hiding in the mountains of Mexico at that time. So we knew we couldn't go into Mexico. We also knew he wasn't coming out, obviously. So we had a deal with his, what I called his executive board, his attorneys, his financial people. And we, dealed with, we dealt with one of his first cousins, a guy named Manuel. And Manuel became the telephone. I was supposed to be the, the El Jefe, the big shot in Sicily. And I was communicating with Chapo through Manuel, his first cousin, who would return, come get the message, return to Mexico, go up in the mountains. And then we started exchanging written messages on pesos. So that's the, that was my communication method, but we knew we were, we were not going to have a face-to-face -face with Chapo. We invited him to come see us in Italy, and he thought about coming. We, were, we called it the escape patch plan. If he wanted to flee Mexico and live in Europe, he was communicating with us to do that, uh, but inevitably he didn't. Who was us? Like, who did he think you were? He thought, he thought you we were, were the Italian mafia? He thought we the were boss? a Sicilian crime family. He thought you were a Sicilian crime we, family? We left the United States completely out of it. If he knew that we were doing anything in the United States, he wouldn't have had anything to do with us. We, we presented ourselves as we were looking for a cocaine market in Europe, and he was looking for that uh, opportunity at the same time, so it made, he thought he was dealing with the Sicilian mob. Got it. And did you, do you speak the language or no? Do you speak Not Italian at all? I have trouble with English. <laughs> yeah. So how are you convincing these guys But this is the, this is the point. Cousin? Yeah, that's a good point. What happened was, in that case, we selected a Sicilian-speaking undercover agent, a very skilled agent out of Newark Division, who was going to be the, the boss. Two weeks, three weeks before the case, he got a private sector opportunity. He was close to retirement. He had to take the job. He apologized profusely, but he had to take the job. So we were stuck without anybody. 
And at that point, that's at the, towards the end of my career, I was confident, even though I didn't speak Italian, I didn't speak Spanish, I was confident we could make a case if we did it right. And that's what I mean about learning from doing it over and over again. You understand what they're looking for. So I told them very early on in English that I didn't want to speak to them in Italian because the Italian police were listening to our phones and that would cause them a problem. So they appreciated that I would only speak to them in English and directly not on the phone. All right? But I told them from the beginning I only spoke English because I didn't want them to bring an Italian speaker to the meetings. And I had Spanish-speaking agents with me and the majority of the conversations took place in Spanish. The majority of the conversation took place in Spanish. So what did, the, uh, what did the, law, the lawyer, El Chapo's lawyer, say to you guys? He said, what, you guys are more disciplined than us? Yes. Uh, we were in the middle of negotiating a huge cocaine deal and we had a facility that we used in Florida that was part of our uh, shtick and we had, a, we had a meeting one night where in the middle of the cocaine negotiations he asked to speak privately to me and another undercover agent and we went outside and he asked us would we be willing to launder money for the Sinaloa cartel. Now we're in the middle of a cocaine deal, money laundering goes hand in hand with that and we said you know let's get this cocaine thing wrapped up and then we'll think about how much money he said just a little bit of money I said how much he said 500 million to start that's the, what they considered a little bit of money yeah so we turned him down and that's when he said uh, Chapo told me to tell you that you're the mo you're the only organization we've dealt with that are more disciplined than we are so again we weren't acting like law enforcement we turned down 500 million dollars worth of laundered money. Why, why did you turn it down? Because it would have interrupted the drug case. Uh, th there, were too many, there were too many logistical challenges to doing that. It's something we pursued later in a different way. But again, going back to the, the state inspector driving in that truck and, mm -hmm. and doing all that, who turns down 500 million? Cops? Never. So we, we, you know, we had to convince them every day. This was three years of investigation. Every day we had to be on our toes with them until the end when we, we actually did get the shipment. Let me ask you a, a complete curveball question here. How, how much similarity does uh, the FBI as an organization have to the mob? You're trying to set me up, so I'll be careful here. The, the old, what I call the old mob, the real true Italian LCN mob, where there was structure and hier hierarchies, it's a chain of command, just like the FBI or the US military, there is a chain of command. All right, and you have to understand your position and what you have to do. Now, I'm, not, I'm making no association that the FBI is like the mob, other than in structure, chain of command, reporting up the chain. So that would be the only similarity between the two that I would say is uh, prevalent in comparing the two. I had, I had a John A. Light here, he was a former Albanian associate of the Gotti family, and he said what made the mob work is fear and structure. Because there was the fear, if you cross the line and you don't do it, the highest level of fear is what? You know, you're gonna get killed. Right. And then structure with the whole levels and hierarchy and right. you know rituals and all that other stuff. Was that pretty normal with all the three families that you were working yes. undercover? Yes, very, no, you, you knew who reported to who. And that was the key, and that's just like in the FBI. You're not going to get killed in the FBI if you don't do your job, but you're going you're gonna to lose your position. Something's going to happen. There's consequences to your actions. And that's why the mob was easier to investigate, because you couldn't, somebody couldn't go wild off the reservation. 
if they decided they were going to do something serious, they had to go up three, four levels to get the okay, and that's what we appreciate. So we, we focused our attention, obviously, on the d decision makers. Those are the, the Guglielmetti's, the, mm. the Merlinos, the Denunzios. We want to get into that decision-making executive level of the crime families because we're dealing with the people who are deciding at the end what's going to be done. Was there anything you saw that was honorable that they did? The only thing I tell people I felt bad about one thing and all the time I did that in the in the uh, Providence case, the Patriarca family case, Matty Googie and Matty's dad died during the investigation. His father was a mobster and Matty took over for his dad, but his father elderly and he passed away. And I went to the services as I was expected to do and at the service I was told that I needed to go into the family crypt where they were burying their father. And I was brought into the family burial site with, with basically the immediate family and I had a tape recorder running. And I didn't really uh, feel very good that day. That was not a day to collect evidence. That was a family that was legitimately grieving. So I did feel, you know, I did feel some uh, remorse for doing I didn't have a choice. Obviously, I can't stop and take the recorder off. Were you upset with yourself that you felt remorse, or no? No, because I think that's human nature. When somebody's family member dies, I'd like to think, you know, yeah, are they mobsters? Yes, but they also have family. And I, I understand some of these guys are very, very good family men. Uh, but again, they choose their path, and, you know, we, we react accordingly. If somebody's not in the business, we're not going to go out and find them. There's a reason somebody's name comes to the attention of the FBI, and it's usually because they're up to no good. Do you trust the FBI? I know after seven years you kind of have a fallen out with them and you had a chip on your shoulder while you did 50-plus cases, but do you trust, again, let me preface this, I know you respect law enforcement, cops, all of that, mm -hmm. but do you trust the FBI organization, what they stand for? Yes. You do? Yes, overall. Oh. The that's, a, that's a safe answer to the overall this. No, the institution, the history, yeah. uh, I respect tremendously. I've had differences with individuals within the FBI. Uh, I've had individuals in the FBI that I think should not have been in the positions that they were. But overall, 99.5% of all FBI personnel are honorable and do the right thing. Uh, do you think most directors are honorable and do the right things? Or would you say some of them are not? That's so far out of my stratosphere. Um, there's some directors that I liked. There's some directors I didn't care for because of just policy and internal decisions they made. Um, the FBI should be under the radar. You should not be hearing, seeing the FBI in the, in the daily news. The, the reason why I ask that is because, you know, <clears throat> for me, you know, unions get started for good reasons. The, the, the basic foundation of a union is what? Hey, you're not taking care of the employees. Yep. Why don't you pay them a little bit more? Guys, let's go on a strike. Two days. Okay, we'll take them up. We'll pay you more. We want some benefits. These people are hurting. They want to go to the doctor. Okay, we'll take care of them, right? And a union becomes what? A political machine is mm -hmm. what it becomes, especially today, right? Okay, did FBI get started for the right reasons back in the days with Hoover? Sure, it was good reasons. We needed something because there was things going on, espionage, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. Say the foundation was true. Do you think it's a little too big and intrusive and 
trying to get into every one of your business today where the American citizen is sitting there saying, I, I don't know if I trust the FBI like I did at one point, maybe. I'd like to think that the majority of the American population trusts the FBI. They should. As I said, 99.5% of FBI personnel are doing the right thing. That's all I can tell you. Now, the, the recent events over the last couple of years, it's embarrassing to the FBI. We shouldn't be in the news. We shouldn't be involved in any political uh, shenanigans, either side. I'm not telling you, you know, one side or the other, anything like that, but the FBI has taken a, a huge beating in the last few years, uh, which upsets me, obviously. I love the FBI. I will mm. love it to the day I die, all right? But I'm trying to tell people, because I get asked this question a million times now. In 30 years, I never got asked. In the last two years, I get asked 100 times. Literally, you're saying this. In 30 years, you never got asked. You, you never. Get asked that. Never. This has only been literally almost since I retired. Two year, uh, three year, two. Oh, okay. Two so three people years. haven't asked because they didn't know you were an FBI agent. No, is people. It? No, people that knew I was an FBI agent they never, never asked. asked this question. No. Do, do you think partly? You know how you talk to some folks and you read history of the mob, and, and for the most part, it was very low key. You didn't go around flashing what you did. You didn't dress mm -hmm. up in fur coats. You know all these stories very very consistent with most mobs. Anybody that gets a little too flashy, and they say Gotti got a little too flashy. You know, the Teflon Don, he would get out and walk around in these nice $2,000, $3,000 Brioni suits, and it got a little bit attention to it, right? Do you think Comey did a little bit, a little bit of that by getting a little too much attention to the FBI that it shouldn't have gotten? Um, I'll never compare Jim Comey to John Gotti. I don't think that's uh, fair to do. The only reason I'm making that comparison is because you are in both worlds. Right. That's the only reason and, I'm making that and, comparison. And my answer would be no, there, there's no comparison between the two. Uh, I don't agree with everything Director Comey did or has done, and especially post um, his FBI service. Yeah. Uh, when he was a director, he had the support of the rank and file, and it was only after the, what I call shenanigans, whatever you want to describe, mm -hmm. when he became uh, more involved in the public discussion. Uh, I just don't think that's right. You know, people use the argument against me, why are you writing a book? Well, I didn't open my mouth for 30 years. Everything that's in that book, you can go into a courthouse and find. I never revealed one thing that's not public record. The FBI should not be engaged or involved in day-to-day -day activities, especially in this political world. It's a very good point. So everything you are writing about is public. So there are some things that happen that you will never tell us about. There's a lot of things you'll never hear from me. No, that's what I'm saying. Yes, so I'll take FBI secrets to my grave. That's what I respect. No, no, I'm, I'm, yes. I'm saying, but you're saying that is not happening. A lot of that is not happening today. No, I'm not saying, I can't speak for anyone other than myself. What you're seeing happening on TV, though, when you watch the media and the news, and maybe we have more information from the FBI than we should. Is that kind of what well, you're I, saying? Well, I would, I would use the, I would use, if you've noticed, the new FBI director, Director Ray, who I don't know and I never served under, we haven't heard much from him, and that's a good thing. That's the way the FBI mm, should operate. Point. So when you hear everybody wants to know about Comey, McCabe, and that crowd, that's so foreign to a street agent like myself. They're head of a corporation. We don't have, we don't just walk down the hall and, and pop our head in their office. It's two different worlds. That's executive management. That's the leadership of the FBI, but 95% of the FBI is in, out in the streets of the the country. How do you view them? How do they view you? Like, is, is it similar to military infantry or infantry, and then there's the guys at the 
offices that are you know doing what they're doing is, is that kind of how you guys view each other yes they're, they're they're at the highest levels of the fbi making decisions that affect the entire fbi in the country and we're doing our investigations in the cities that we work so i was i was more interested in helping defeat crime in boston than anything coming out of washington dc and are a lot of FBI agents motivated to go out there and become directors one day or no? no. Most undercovers no. are just kind of like, this is what I enjoy doing, leave me alone. There's, that's how most street agents, uh, we call them street agents who are just doing the investigations. People in management want to go up the chain, but they're not going to get to the director. Be, the only director that's ever been an FBI agent was Louis Free. Louis Free was by far the best FBI director I ever served under. Wow, do you think people. it helped the fact that he was undercover? Uh, a thousand percent. He, no, he, he worked, wow. un, not only did he work undercover, he was a case agent, he was a street agent. He understood our job. Other directors come from different, um, they come from uh, legal, legal firms. They're, they didn't have uh, agents' perspective. Now they're very, obviously they're very honorable and, and intelligent people, but they haven't been in a squad area and worked a case. What year was he the director? Louis Free was a director in um, the early 80s. He was a director under President Clinton. I think we, I think he was like 83 to... 83 would be Reagan. Because uh, Carter's I know he was, 81, 82. Yeah, no, I don't... <coughs> he was under... Louis Free was when President Clinton was in office. In 92. 92. Got it. So interesting, yeah. 92 to 2000, some, somewhere around that, that time. Yep. Uh, you know, it, just a uh, random question since we're still on this topic. What do you think should be the government's involvement with people? And here's what I mean by it. You know, we're going in a direction right now where it's kind of like, you know, what, what is the cutoff for how much privacy we should have? And what is the cutoff for how much protection we should have as citizens, where the government knows best for us? I ask this question because, you know, uh, just recently, I mean, you read about this stuff with this whole thing on Apple versus FBI. Mm -hmm. Hey, give us the phone information on this terrorist and you know no I don't want to do it because I'm kind of breaking my privacy but you should give it because we can catch the bad guy and you kind of put the CEO of the company in a rough position and you know even the other one with the FBI and ICE you know driver's license photos are not goldmine for them because Washington Post uh, did an article talking about that agents are scanning millions of Americans faces without their knowledge or consent and then Representative Jim Jordan says this should not be happening without anybody's consent. So what is the fine line between, hey, give me some privacy versus we know what's best to protect the nation? All right, I'll, I'll answer that as first a private citizen and then as an FBI, a retired FBI I appreciate agent. That. As, a, as a private citizen, I'd always be, I'd always be concerned about <coughs> any intrusion into the privacy of American citizens. But from a law enforcement standpoint when we go to Apple when now I'm speaking as an FBI retired agent when we go to Apple when we go to um, try to do things if it is in the deterrence of crime and especially in national security or terrorism related matters I'll leave it up to the constitutional scholars how far the the line should be moved but if you don't have access the technology is outpacing law so things that are happening with, with technology now, the legal system is racing to catch up with. And just because something that uh, was put into law in 1950 may not be applicable today. We're here on this, this sacred day of 9-11, that's when we're speaking to you today, okay? If everybody goes back to 9-11 and how they felt that day, 
I think you'd have a lot more people remembering what it's like to be under terrorist attack. So we have to adjust to the time and the technology that we're currently, um, because the, the FBI, regardless of what people may think, the FBI is not asking Apple to open up something just to peek into some of these uh, book. There, there's, a, there's a law enforcement reason. That's why we get court orders or, or subpoenas or warrants. There, there has to, it, it's done in a proper manner. But we have to, we don't want these modern technologies defeating us as a nation. But doesn't it start that way? Doesn't it start with an honorable uh, motive? We, we, would, we would be here for weeks if we were going back and forth on this issue. Well, you know what I'm talking about when I say yeah. doesn't it start some, so you know when I say start starts like that, and again, for me, I was in the U.S. Army, and I did it proudly, one of the best decisions I ever made. 101st Airborne, uh, I would have done it 10 out of 10 times. And when I got out, I went to the FBI uh, building in L.A., and I wanted to be one. And I went out there, filled out all the information. I'm interested. It was a freeze. I wanted to be a firefighter, and I wanted to be FBI. One of the two. There was a freeze on fire department on hiring firefighters for five years. I was going to go to El Camino College, because that's where they gave you all the basic requirements schooling to take to go be a firefighter. I think some of it had to do CPR and some of these other things I had to take. And I want to be an agent. So I wanted to go the route you went. E essentially, e eventually things changed and I went to the financial services side. The reason I'm asking this is, as an immigrant that escaped Iran to come here because sometimes in Iran they were worried about, you know, uh, the, the, the government wanting a little bit too much control mm -hmm. over the people. You know, you, you keep that as a paranoia uh, of uh, these, these institutions are getting a little too big and too powerful, you know. Should I, I, I be a little bit worried? If you about look that? at the world history, I can understand that. I think you have to concentrate on U.S. history and the checks and balances that we have in place and we continue to have in place. If you've noticed, a lot of the provisions that were put in place after 9 11 have, have gone out of, they've been uh, discontinued. Mm. So there is a, and again, I'm, I'm not trying to say that the FBI does everything perfect. We don't, we're human beings. But this, this idea that the government is doing something for nefarious reasons, I, I can't support. I've never seen it in 30 plus years. When you were talking about, you know, technology is outpacing law, mm -hmm. what do you think is a solution for that? I think the law has to catch up quickly. Because how do, you, it's how a, do we do that? Well, again, I leave this to people who are much more um, uh, in tune with what has to be done, but some of the wiretap, the, the electronic surveillance laws that we operate haven't been changed for 40, 50 years. The internet has completely changed the world, including the FBI. You have to address these emerging uh, technical trends so legally there's, there's some type of balance, okay? If you tell me that Apple has the computer of somebody who's threatened to blow up Grand Central Station, the FBI should get in there somehow. That's, that's a national emergency. Should. Should, absolutely. Got it. So in, in, it's in the preservation of human life. That's, you know, it's just. You're making a very good case. I'm only pushing, I'm, no, I'm, I'm not pushing no, I because I'm disagreeing No, I appreciate with you. your. The only reason I'm saying this is because you are right. We're living in a different time where, you know, some of the people that, uh, the most dangerous criminals today is a 15-year-old hacker that knows how to get into systems. So it's not the same kind of method of committing crime as it was maybe when you were coming up as and an FBI. 100%. Today you would have to be a completely different FBI, so I'm, I'm, I'm appreciating your perspective. I would never have been hired in today's FBI, I can tell you that, because I don't have the background or the skill set yeah, to, to the threats that we're facing now. It's The threats now versus 30 years ago are completely different.
What are they? Is it, is it more mainly cyber security? Cyber, cyber espionage, economic hmm. uh, theft. It's just <coughs> it's a, it's a global world. That we so are, we so live in. you as a citizen, not as a as a civilian, not as an agent, from the perspective of a hmm. citizen, we the people, would you be comfortable on certain cases? Uh, the government having access to certain phone files with companies or Facebook or Google or Apple or some of those to help us prevent a major disaster from taking place? I, w I would have to have a, a specific example. I don't want to talk in generalities, but if something involves the preservation of life, then there should be law enforcement exceptions to obtain that information. It's the same thing. There's there's a There's a statute that we've used, we actually used it in the Boston Marathon bombings, Quarles versus New York. If you look up Quarles versus New York, a gentleman named Quarles committed a crime and ran into a grocery store and threw the gun away, if I remember correctly. He, he discarded a weapon. And the police chased him and they asked him where the weapon was before they provided him as Miranda warnings. And that case was upheld through our Supreme Court because the potential harm to the general public outweighed providing him as Miranda warning. So there's a loaded gun somewhere in the store that some kid can pick up, etc. That's what I'm saying on this technology uh, trend. We have to be able to get information when there's a clear definition that harm is coming. It's just a, such a fine line. You know, it's such a fine line. To I'll leave that. I'll leave that to others. Sure, yeah. But you're but asking I, from a law enforcement, and as a, pr as a private citizen, I don't even like when Google brings me to a location. I don't like that, mm -hmm. okay? I don't like a phone that's being able to say where I am, but I understand it. But this is where that balance has to come in, in, in my humble opinion. Yeah, I'm, I'm just curious to know, at, at what point do the people have enough say in this to where they feel the level of comfort for it to happen, and at what point uh, do the people not have access to all the informations to allow the FBI, who is not like a Comey that's a public figure, maybe a guy that's more low-key, to make the decisions knowing they have access to information that we don't know about. That, well, that part, I, we can I, never know anything but about. But I think, I mean, I think that's the responsibility of our elected representatives, our Congress and our House of Representatives. They're the ones who legislate laws. We vote for it, and we vote for it to right. see who we feel is going to do the best job in these areas. That's so, the American system, right? And that's why I'm in America, believe me. That's why I'm in America, and uh, for me, I am uh, uh, most confident with this system than a lot of other systems out there, okay? Agreed. So, so for me, it, it, I don't agree uh, with this whole notion of keep pushing for a perfect system because I don't think utopia exists. I don't think there's anywhere where unicorns fly, and if there is, it's only in the movies and cartoons. In real life, things get pretty ugly at times, and some of the decisions we are better off not knowing everything about it. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm not talking about free press, let's take it out, that's not what I'm talking mm -hmm. about, but some stuff sometimes, it's a little too much information. So how was it when Sylvester Stallone's approach you about the story? Did you kind of go out, did somebody pitch it for you? Did somebody reach out to you? How, how did that take place? Uh, what happened on that end, the book, the book had not even been released, and without my knowledge, or without my advanced knowledge, uh, a, um, a proposal was sent to his company, and from what I understand, uh, he jumped on it right away. He, he enjoyed the story. I later met with him to discuss it. Um, we reached an agreement, and we are moving forward on that project. Moving forward on that project. That's, have you been with them face-to-face? -face? Have you guys? Yes. Uh, you have. Mm -hmm. 
And when when should we expect this movie to come out? I have no idea. Oh, that's, you don't know that's, you that's them. That's them. Um, it, th again, this is just something. That's why you you mentioned it earlier, and I, I appreciate the the opportunity. Uh, I'm appearing on your show because of this book. But what's important to me is the 30 years I did in the FBI and what I so whatever happens post FBI happens. It's not really an overriding issue for me. I think I did what I was asked to do for a long time. I did it as well as I could, and that's what's important to me. This post-FBI stuff, what happens, happens, and I'll just enjoy the ride. Yeah, and, and uh, I heard, uh, read somewhere that you are now a consultant to Hollywood when they make movies. Was it Equalizer that you, you were a I consultant? I worked on uh, Equalizer 2. Equalizer 2. Antoine Fuqua directed Denzel Washington, Pedro Pascal. I, I tried my hand at that, yeah. And you're coaching Denzel on what to do in certain parts to get him to understand the role? The, you, you just bring a law enforcement side to the, to the when, they wanna, when they'll show you something, is this realistic? Well, no, because A, B, and C. So when somebody asks you a question, your job, like Pedro Pascal, one of the, we had to teach him how to properly shoot a uh, assault weapon. And the first time he grabbed it, it was embarrassing, which he admitted, but you know, he, he got pretty good at it by the end. How was uh, Denzel working with uh, Denzel Washington? I had limited contact with him. He's obviously, he's the star of the show, so he didn't need a lot of law enforcement. The one scene that I did help them with was there was a, a scene in a, in a dining room where some violence occurred, and he's trying to figure it out, so I had to show them different things that you look for at a homicide, things like that. It was just, it was just trying something new. Well, you know, uh, uh, once again, um, for anybody to give 35 years of their life to protect uh, and serve citizens, that's, that's an honorable thing to do. That's a long time of your life, especially I think you had three kids and missing a lot of moments and putting yourself on the line with two and a half years and writing this book for your wife and three kids and her doing what she did for you. Lots of respect for you doing that because uh, it's not a job many people would like to have. I know you did it and you said you recommend other people doing it because you had a great time doing it, but it takes a certain level of willingness to serve for a bigger purpose to give 35 years of your life to a country and you did that. I respect you for doing that. And so here's what I would say if you want to go out and read the book. Uh, Sylvester Stallone is not going to go out and pick up a script and say, oh, you know, any book, I'm going to go out and make a movie about it. There's a reason for it. And there's a lot of stories here that we didn't get into. And uh, with that being said, again, thank you for your service. I appreciate you flying out here to Dallas. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Anytime. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And by the way, if you haven't already subscribed to Valuetainment on iTunes, please do so. Give us a five-star. Write a review if you haven't already. And if you have any questions for me that you may have, you can always find me on Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. Just search my name, Patrick Bidavid. And I actually do respond back when you snap me or send me a message on Instagram. With that being said, have a great day today. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.